Welcome to the Public Morality. There is very little that the coronavirus pandemic is not affecting in our daily lives. There's very little that the coronavirus pandemic is not affecting in our daily lives, including the notion of federalism that dates back to the country's origin. Simply stated, federalism is a type of government in which the power is divided between the national government and other state and local governments. But crisis has a way of blurring those lines that can make it unclear which entity is responsible for what, when, and how. Joining me to discuss federalism and the ramifications during the coronavirus pandemic is Professor Jennifer Saline. Professor Saline is an assistant professor of constitutional democracy at the University of Missouri's Department of Political Science. She recently penned an article on the Conversation.com website entitled, Trump versus the States, What Federalism Means for the Coronavirus Response. Professor Jennifer Saline, welcome to the public morality. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by setting the foundation for our listeners. Define federalism, where is it found in the Constitution, and why is it important? So federalism uh, is a basic term that describes how our government splits authority to regulate its citizens. So some authority is reserved to the states, and some authority is reserved to the national government. Uh, and the, the place where you can find the ideas that are uh, rooted in federalism come from uh, the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, which says that the powers that are not delegated to the United States or uh, are reserved to either the states or citizens themselves. And it's important, it was a very, very important aspect of our nation's founding and the, the discussions of the framers of the Constitution. Um, there were sort of three ideas that were percolating around, around the, the framing of the Constitution. The most important thing that the framers were concerned about when they promoted this idea of reserving some powers to the states is protections of civil liberties. They wanted to make sure that the national government would not encroach upon the, the individual rights of citizens. Um, and then the framers were also concerned about political accountability. They wanted citizens to be able to attribute blame and reward to the appropriate governmental officials and to be able to hold them accountable for their actions. And so by delineating authority and saying that the federal government or the national government has certain aspects uh, or, and certain responsibilities and the state governments have other responsibilities, it becomes easier for us as citizens to be able to attribute blame or reward to governmental officials. Now, you, make, you mentioned that we also we find federalism the, the, the basis for it in the 10th Amendment. That's also the amendment that was often used to justify the institutions of slavery as well as Jim Crow segregation. And so it, it, has, a, it has a dark past to it. And then some of its, correct me if I'm wrong here, Professor, but then, then wasn't some of its power slightly delineated by the ratification of the 14th Amendment? So this whole, so we've been juggling this notion of federalism around since our inception, right? 
Oh, absolutely. And something like the 14th Amendment, uh, which works to preserve our individual liberties and our ability to to, to operate freely without governmental interference can run up in tension against exactly as you were saying, some of these ideas of, of governmental oppression in ways and, and acting in, in ways that, that we would not necessarily be proud of, shall we say. And so there, there is inherently um, a tension between allowing states to create policies that are appropriate for their citizens, but then what does one do if states have that freedom to craft policies, but then use that freedom in a way that encroaches upon our rights as free citizens? So maybe it's fair to say that this whole notion of federalism um, and where those actual lines of demarcation occur has been challenging since the, since the nation's inception. Yes. And, and our evolution of our understanding of the role of government and what government actually does has changed dramatically over the course of the past 200 years. And so the government does so many more things than the framers would have ever even thought about. Environmental regulation, regulation of our communication systems. These are things that the federal government does, that state governments do, that maybe the, the framers could not have even conceptualized. And um, as, we, as we evolve technologically, as we evolve in, in our understanding of what government does, our understanding of the Constitution has to evolve as well. And figuring out where the lines are in terms of who does what and what is appropriate and what is not is a really difficult thing and things that legal scholars and constitutional scholars to this day struggle with. Now, we, we, I, I sort of mentioned in passing uh, the 14th Amendment because that was a result, obviously, um, in the aftermath of the Civil War. Now, now we have a pandemic comes along and similar to a Civil War, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a game changer, but it certainly has created a moment of uncertainty vis-a-vis -vis federalism, and I wonder how you saw that. Well, as I as I pointed out, uh, the the um, some of the intentions behind federalism were to protect individual liberty um, and to allow for political accountability. And there was there are also concerns that the Supreme Court has recognized about fiscal responsibility in, in terms of just who pays for what. Um, and all each of these three things you can see coming out in the coronavirus uh, pandemic and, and how government deals with this. So who is responsible? Are state governors responsible for testing, for example, or should the federal government be held accountable for providing uh, the framework for us to get testing and expand uh, research in the area of coronavirus? And uh, protections of civil liberties. Where Where is the line? What do our state and national governments, uh, what can they do to tell us whether to stay home or social distance? Um, and, and that is infringing upon our rights as citizens to move freely. But we have to balance that against health concerns, which we would want the government to step in and, and help regulate. And then who pays for it? Do the state governments pay for it? Do the, does the national government pay for it? And all of these things you can you can see in daily arguments between Trump, between the governors, between the parties in Congress. These are real considerations. 
you know, but but we shouldn't. Uh, I guess it would be fair to say that, we, but we've always had this tension, sort of encroaching on, you know, federalism encroaching on liberty. This is not the first time that these sort of tensions, um, in a macro sense, have 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 come before us, right? That, that's correct. And and health health policy in particular is is an area that these tensions arise because the states have the ability in the Constitution to regulate the health and wel- welfare of their citizens. And that's the primary role of the state government in our federal system. However, over time, the federal government has encroached upon this ability of the state's to, to regulate the health and welfare of the citizens, and for good reason. Um, and so this idea that with respect to health policy, who does what is a little bit unclear is nothing new. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with University of Missouri professor, a political science professor, uh, Jennifer Celine, and we're discussing the notion of federalism in the midst of a pandemic. Professor Shaleen, we sort of touched on it just a moment ago, but I want to come back to it. Um, when we talk about relying on the framer sense of federalism, I mean, th- that in a sense can be a loaded term because I'm, I'm just thinking of what the framers envisioned about federalism vis-a-vis the Articles of Confederation and then mm-hmm. what they could see vis-a-vis the Constitution very different. I wonder if you could explain those differences and so what, to, to further your uh, statement earlier that it's an evolving process. Yeah. So, um, as with any political decision, the decisions of the framers were informed by their past experiences with government. And so the framers were uh, very uncomfortable with the idea of executive power because of their experience under the British monarchy. Um, and then as, as the framers began to, uh, think about how to craft the American government, they first decided to create the Articles of Confederation, which gave a ton of power to the states and very, very little power to the national government. And what what ended up happening under the Articles of Confederation is that the national government did not have enough power to help the states do basic things like conduct foreign policy, create a unified currency, help with economic policy, the things that we generally think a nation needs to be able to do. And so in their second try at government, which is the constitution under which we live today, uh, there were debates about how much power the state should have. And what got the states to sign on to the constitution initially is this idea that the states would not be giving up their own sovereignty for the greater nation itself. They recognize the need for the nation to be able to conduct foreign affairs, to create some sort of generalized economic policy, but they also wanted to make sure that each individual state and its own citizens within those states were protected from national power, and in particular, executive power. And through time, Obviously, things have changed quite a bit, and even the evolution of the presidency itself as an institution has has changed tremendously. And over time, the executive branch has gained increasing power, which has shifted the dynamics between the states and the national government. Now, I was thinking sarcastically, and I just want to point out before I say I was thinking sarcastically when you said that the states 
agreed only because they wouldn't lose their sovereignty. I'm saying, well, I'm glad that didn't create a crisis. I want to use, using the words of uh, former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, are these, you know, are the 50 contemporary laboratories of democracy designed, as you see it, to withstand the present crisis um, as individual states? The optimist in me says absolutely. Uh, I think this idea that states are laboratories of democracy is a great thing that we have a very heterogeneous, you know, heterogeneous uh, country with lots of different uh, things to consider. And, and having each individual state experiment with its own policies with respect to health, education, welfare, these sorts of things can be really good because we, through trial and error, instead of having one trial and one error, we can get 50 different tries and experiments and, and then learn more from that. So the optimist in me says that is a wonderful thing. However, the pessimist in me says that in, in the time of a crisis, in a pandemic, it may not be the best thing for the country that we have 50 or even if there are multiple attempts at a policy, 100, 200 different policies going on at the same time within our country, uh, particularly when we think about uh, the fast-moving nature of the coronavirus, uh, the transient nature of citizens within the United States. I mean, my own parents and sister travel repeatedly up and down the East Coast. And it's interesting to think that every time you cross a state border, there's likely a different policy that deals with the coronavirus. Yeah, it, it, it's I, what I hear you saying. It's, it's not as simple as government Governor A has in, in his or her state a low contraction rate and Governor B in, in his or her state has a high contraction rate. Therefore, Governor A is open for business and Governor B is, is, is shut down. It's just not that simplistic for the reasons you just mentioned. I would 100% agree with that. Yes, sir. When the president recently stated that presidential authority is total, doesn't that run against the ethos of federalism? In short, yes, it does. Uh, yes, it does. Um, the president does have authority to executive authority to help our nation's laws be implemented to execute those laws appropriately. And, and the president via the constitution is the chief executive of our nation. He is the CEO of our nation. However, that is a very different thing than having complete authority to tell states what to do or even Congress what to do. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a sticky situation. Now, now I'm going to take the other side cause I can do that. I don't have, I don't have to have an opinion, only you. So, um, <laughs> in fairness to the president, uh, American history tends to organically gravitate toward the presidency for leadership in the midst of crisis. So in that sense, doesn't he have a point? Well, and if you uh, if you look at historically, even go you can trace it back to George Washington. George Washington seized authority for the presidency that was not contemplated by the framers when they were drafting the Constitution. The ability 
to say remain neutral in foreign affairs and to create a policy that says we are not going to get involved in a particular uh, military crisis uh, was something that George Washington created and established. It's not in the Constitution. Um, and just as George Washington said, okay, I have this authority to make these decisions to promote the welfare of our nation as our nation's commander-in-chief and chief executive, Trump also does have some authority to say, in this time of crisis, I, and as my role of com as commander-in-chief and chief executive, I have the ability to direct things in a way that may not have been contemplated even 10 years ago. However, you still have to do that within the parameters of the Constitution. And the two big things is our, uh, this federalism idea, the idea that we do have to preserve some state sovereignty, and the idea that you have to work within the separation of power system, and that any action that the president takes has to be able to be traced to a law that Congress has passed or to the Constitution itself. And those are two big things that keep kind of a, a stopgap on what the president can do. Uh, you wrote in the recent piece uh, for uh, Conversation.com that the president is insisting that he has a responsibility to reopen the economy, but it's the governor's responsibility to manage testing. That seems to be somewhat arbitrary in my view and, and how do we delineate delineate that in terms of federalism so I just get to ask the questions you have to come up with the tough with, with the tough responses so <laughs> well constitutionally uh, whatever the president does as I suggested has to be able to be traced to a law that Congress can pass and over time Congress has used uh, a couple of clauses in the Constitution to expand its authority to be able to pass laws. And uh, one of those clauses is the Commerce Clause, which allows Congress to regulate commerce. So the natural extension of that is that Congress can set up uh, a system and a plan, a policy, to deal with the commercial aspects of the coronavirus. And, and then delegate some of that authority to the president and the executive branch to implement the policies that come out of Congress with respect to the coronavirus. However, the health and welfare of the citizens is really the state's responsibility. So things like testing, which, yes, it may seem arbitrary, but testing is much more closely related to health and welfare of individual citizens than, say, uh, small business loans, which tend to fall much more with respect to the commercial aspects of our nation's policy and this coronavirus crisis. Uh, in spite of the best intentions and, 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 the, and the understandable reasons why the founders were concerned with any concentration of power, what are some of the unintended consequences of federalism when it's working as it was drawn up? I think one of the things that the framers and the founders did not necessarily anticipate is the incentive of states to cede some authority to the national government. Uh, 
the national government, and I think the founders definitely anticipated this, every actor, every governmental actor in some way does have an incentive to acquire more and more power. And, and in drafting the Constitution, the founders were very aware of this. And so I think the, the framers understood that national officials would always be seeking to increase more power and more power and more power, and that they might take some of that power from the states. But what I don't think that the framers really anticipated fully was the incentive of the states to cede some, some authority to the national government, either to avoid the financial implications of having to implement policies or to avoid some of the political ramifications of making hard decisions. If we can allow the national government to do some of those things, then state governmental officials can avoid blame for any big national, uh, nationally oriented failures, shall we say, in policymaking. You know, you know and, and, maybe, and maybe this is just a cynicism in me, but I, I see that federalism comes up uh, when there's a group that does not want to take full responsibility and therefore it becomes this catch-all uh, of avoidance. Right, which is quite ironic if you think that the whole one of the whole justifications for creating federalism in the first place was to make it easier for citizens to hold individuals accountable who work in government. But if we have uh, the way that our system has evolved and we have both the federal and the state governments enacting policies in the same arena, in the same health crisis, then it, then it does. It becomes very difficult for us to figure as citizens to figure out, okay, is this the president's fault? Is this Congress's fault? Is this my governor's fault? Is it my state legislature's fault? Who here is in control? And when I go to the ballot box, who do I reward for doing a good job, and who do I punish for doing a bad job? Well, we see that playing out right now with, with in certain states uh, across the country. You have a number of protesters you know, going to the governor's, uh, or going to, to, to the um, Capitol in protest of their liberties, and then you also have um, protesting those governors, uh, the ones identified by the president. Then you have some people who... Um, uh, very vehement that it's the president's fault. So that that is sort of playing out right now, um, a federalism that we don't want, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And another thing that that the was not fully anticipated by the framers is the development of political parties. Uh, if you think about the way that the Constitution was initially established, uh, the, the framers really did not anticipate these two very, very cohesive units battling against one another in the way that they do today. And so that adds an, even another layer of complexity to this very complex system um, and, and plays into how people uh, interpret the policies that are being enacted at the state and national level. Say, say more about that, if you will, because when, when you said that, I mean, I mean you're obviously right. They didn't co contemplate parties. But you did have, I would say, the roots of Fox News and MSNBC with the Hamiltonian newspapers and the Jeffersonian newspapers. So they they had their parsing kerfuffles. If they am I, am I right? 
Oh, absolutely. 100%. And I think it would be unrealistic to say that there weren't divisions in the way that people thought about politics at any moment in time. But uh, we can use the presidency as an example. So when the Constitution was written, the, the way that the system was intended to operate is that members of the Electoral College would vote for the person that they thought was the best qualified for the presidency, and then the second person, the person who had the second amount of votes, would become the vice president. And shortly after the Constitution got up off the ground and running, it became clear that you can't just have the first person who wins become president and the second person who wins become vice, or the person with the second amount of votes become vice president, because they might have differential views on policy that could create inherent tensions. And so the framework, so the constitution actually had to be amended in order to allow us to have a system where the vice president and the president can work together and probably appreciate politics and come from them from the same viewpoint. So that's just one example of how political parties have shaped our politics in a way that maybe the, the framers didn't 100% anticipate. I'm laughing uh, because I'm thinking, well, that, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense because you could argue that Jefferson, as vice president, undermined some of the work of Adams, and Aaron Burr, as vice president, Killed Alexander Hamilton, so <laughs> not exactly. We need to rethink this piece, this vice presidential piece. <laughs> exactly, and and so that, and then we have in in today's society those tensions between the way that we think about politics are even more exacerbated than they were, and and in, and individual citizens have more access to information about politics than they did even 50 years ago, and that has allowed us to sort into political parties in a more cohesive way than, than perhaps if we didn't have that information about our elected officials. And that's great, right? Like We should know what our elected officials think and how they're acting and be able to sort ourselves in support or against them accordingly. Uh, but as a result of that, we tend to, to bring ourselves into two very distinct camps. And that affects the way that we view the world. Uh, with both your optimistic and pessimistic hats on simultaneously, how are we negotiating this current moment of federalism? I think that we're doing okay. Could we do better? Absolutely. But I think that there are signs that federalism is working the way that it should. Governors are responding to the demands of their citizens. It may not, in the grand scheme of things, be, we might look back and say, well, the way that the governors responded was not the best policy given all that was going on. But the fact that governors are responding to the demands of their citizens is exactly what the, the founders would have intended. Uh, and I think that uh, the the the, Fed, the national government is operating and and responding to the demands of the national the national interests uh, the the stimulus plans that Congress is passing uh, the the relaxation of testing requirements and research requirements that the Food and Drug Administration is is doing these are all great things um, we might look back and say 
we wish that the national government had taken a more str- a more strong uh, stance on social distancing or when things can open or close or providing more testing and things like that. But above all else, in this time of crisis, it is it is nice to see that we are still preserving some of the the basic principles on which our nation was founded. And I wonder, um, especially given your last answer and the totality, actually, of your answers during this conversation, I wonder, is some of the tension around federalism our desire to be tension-free by get in tension with a process that's designed that we have tension? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think in in some ways we want our cake and we want to eat it too, right? Um, and and I think that you hinted at this earlier. Well, didn't hint you explicitly said <laughs> uh, there is one of the big tensions with federalism and all all the positive things that differentiating between the states and national governments, um, all the all the great things that, that can do. But there is a history of negative policy and oppressive policy by the states that uh, take advantage of minority populations. And that is always an underlying tension when you talk about federalism. And it raises a red flag because we want to give the states freedom to be able to operate as they see fit. But we also don't want to give the states freedom to trample on the rights of any citizens. You know, I was I was talking uh, with a good friend of mine, and he and we always we talk um, like uh, at the end of the week or beginning of the week, and he says, "So, so what's your show tomorrow?" And um, and granted, we're talking on the phone, so you'll appreciate what I'm saying. So I said, "Oh, I'm going to talk about the impact the pandemic has on federalism." And I could literally hear his eyes glaze over. Um, I know federalism is so boring, right? Right. So I want. Um, so I'm, I'm giving you the, the. I'm giving you the the floor right now. Why should more Americans be concerned not only with federalism but the impact that this pandemic has on federalism right now? The floor is yours, Professor Celine. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I teach when I teach federalism to my Intro to American class. I distinctly remember learning about federalism in school and being bored out of my mind. Uh, and the analogies that professors would draw or teacher, my government teachers in high school would draw, I just was like, this is awful. But federalism is everywhere. For example, we can think about something when I teach my undergrads, I teach them about marijuana policy. Marijuana policy is a federal issue, what each individual state uh, decides to do with respect to uh, marijuana is, is a federal issue. It's, it's federalism um, and, and how the Congress responds to each individual state is an example of federalism. Sports betting. Sports betting is a federal issue. Uh, the, the Supreme Court recently actually decided a case on that. Uh, so anything that you can think of as a citizen, there's probably a role for both the state and the federal government to regulate that aspect of your life. And we all should think about who we want doing that regulating. 
See, so, that, that, was, that was perfect. I'm, you know, my when you said marijuana, my producer's eyes lit up. No, I'm just kidding. No, it didn't. <laughs> 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 I'm kidding. Uh, but no, but but I mean, it, it. I really appreciate you taking the time to to articulate that because it's just one of those things that uh, if you have a nerdy radio host who wants to talk about federalism with the professors, the only time it gets on. But it's really important, so I appreciate you articulating it, Professor Jennifer <laughs> Celine, University of Missouri. Uh, you guys are the Tigers, right? We are. We are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you uh, for joining me today on the Public Rally. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. And, and I thank you for having me. It was a delight. Oh, thank you. The Public Orality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios during the coronavirus pandemic. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>